morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up to the book of Galatians. We're engaged in a sermon series going verse by verse through this letter that Paul has written to the churches, plural, in the province or area of Galatia. Today we're going to pick up where we left off last week in verse 8. This is God's word. May we hear it and receive it as such. Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you. In vain. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, as we gather here this morning, we are grateful. We are grateful that Jesus has come, that you have fulfilled all of the obligations you demanded. And Lord, we are grateful that you continue to speak to us through your word, that we might know you the one who knows us perfectly. It is a privilege, Lord, to be in relationship with you. And not just any relationship. One of respect, one of joy, one filled with reverence and intimacy. Lord, thank you for making yourself known to us that we might know you. Continue and advance that work in us, we ask this morning. In Jesus' name, and all God's people agreed. We are, of course, talking about the gospel. It's why this is my favorite book in the Bible. The book of Galatians is about the freedom we have in Christ. That we have not earned, that we have not deserved, Honestly, that we didn't even know we could request. You are so filled with grace, we should pray to God every day. And we should live in the comfort, in the peace, and in the joy of salvation. One that is given all up front. I think most of us have been taught by the world, whether we learned it young in life or through our families or our educations or later in life through coworkers or classmates, that we probably shouldn't extend massive trust up front, right? I think most of us have learned the hard way at some point 
that trust can be broken. That relationships that you thought would last forever didn't make the week. I remember this in young romantic interests. In middle school, I had a crush on a girl named Kristen Leary. And we started going together. No idea what that meant at the time. But by the end of a single school day, my heart and our relationship was broken. I literally had one lunch with her. And as silly those memories are, the lessons lingered. Maybe still do. One of the amazing things that Paul is trying to help the men and women and children in these churches and in our church understand is that the favor of God is secured and given up front. The world does not operate that way. And so as we consider what Paul is teaching them and therefore us about our relationship with God and about the way we live our lives, he draws a pair of contrasts in this passage. The first contrast is between freedom and bondage, freedom and slavery. The second one is between knowing God and not knowing God. So when we think about these contrasts, they seem so simple in theory. Which would you prefer, freedom or slavery? Do you need time to mull that one over? Maybe, if Jacob has taught me anything, it's to listen for the details and read the fine print, as any lawyer should tell you. I'll be a slave to Christ, as opposed to free to my own wiles. See, this is the challenge of living out these things that we assume are simple. And so Paul is trying to help them, in some sense, return to the simplicity of truth against, contrasted against, the simplicity of the way the world works. There are two contrasts, freedom and bondage, knowing God and not knowing God. But at the center of our text today, right in the middle of verse 9, we see a question that strikes me every time I come here. Every time I read this verse and I look at the pages of Scripture overall, I am alarmed, I am encouraged, I am warned, and I am comforted. The question is simply this, how can you turn back again? Do you like your life? 
Do you love your life? Seems like an easy question. Are you satisfied? Are you satisfied at home? Are you satisfied at work? Are you satisfied in your relationships? Do you know the joy of your father's pride in you? Or do you look back fondly at things that the Lord has taken from you that were not good for you, but that you are romancing in your mind? Oh, the days when I was free to, says a husband struggling with his marriage. Oh, the glory days when I was mortgage-free and moving every six months. There are elements of our lives that change over the course of our life. So the question, how can you turn back again, has an incredulous tone. Please hear it. The question is, why do you want to go back to something the Lord delivered you from, ransomed you from, redeemed you from? It's fascinating. If you study the history of Israel, as you live in the Old Testament, you will see time and time and time again the southern parts of Israel throughout the centuries want to go back to Egypt. Which is madness to me as someone living so many millennia later. I don't get it. I'm like, you want to go back to making bricks seven days a week? No time for your family, no time for the Lord, no time, no time, no time. I was preaching through Exodus about 10 years ago. And we came to Exodus chapter 16. And I want you to listen to these first three verses. And it's important because the Exodus, the history of that Exodus, is the backdrop of what Paul's talking about here in Galatians. So we need to remember the backdrop in order to understand the incredulous element, the emotional surprise and frustration of how can you turn back again? So, the Exodus continues to be the theological backdrop of Galatians chapter 4. So let's dive back into Exodus 16. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. Just like six weeks. Now, refresh my memory, if you will. They just had a conversation with Pharaoh and were like, hey, uh, this arrangement's not working out for us. 
we'd like to go. You're cool with that, right? Is that how that conversation went? God sent Moses down, grabbed everybody, and they were like, oh, let me pack for your journey. Here, take my gold, my silver. Here are the fine linens. Here are all the food supplies you need. Anything else we can do to serve you, love you, care for you? Is that how that went? So the lead up to their exit is as dramatic an event as human history has ever recorded. It was like, what, 10 plagues? 10 massive signs and wonders that no one could deny or misunderstand? Pharaoh kept flip-flopping back and forth. Yeah, go ahead and go. Oh, no, I don't want you to go. I'm kind of scared of your God. All right, I'm really sorry for the way I've treated you, but I'm going to go back to doing it exactly the same way. So the buildup is dramatic. What about the event of exiting itself? That was pretty simple. Pharaoh was like, fine, I release you. And they gather up their stuff and go. And then what does Pharaoh say? Yeah, just kidding. Hey, army, which is probably the most advanced military in the region at the time, with chariots and bows, armor and shield, spear and arrow. Hey, go get them back. I changed my mind. So now they have the greatest military force of their imagination. Because remember, they've been slaves for four centuries. So their information is probably fairly limited about what the rest of the world looks like. And they come to a place where they're up against a river. It's not a tiny river. It's a giant river. It's an impassable river. And in that moment, can you imagine the terror of knowing that the army is pursuing you and you are cornered with nowhere to go, with no deliverance imaginable in your mind. And then, right as you see them and they are in front of you, the Lord takes a cloud, a mist, a large vapor, and confuses their orientation. So they're coming after you, but they're not getting to you. And then God tells Moses to do what? Lift a piece of wood. That's the delivery plan, y'all. Raise up a piece of wood. And then what happens? The water parts into two giant walls, one on each side, yes? If you've ever been to an aquarium, like if you go to Atlanta, there's this place where you can kind of walk through the sea. Have you been there? You know what I'm talking about? And you have water on the left, you have water on the right, you even have water above, which, you know, plastic's cool. They didn't have any walls made of anything at all. God's word peels back the waters. And the land is muddy because it was just wet, right? Oh, it's dry ground. 
Oh, okay. And it's real narrow, right? Like it's one at a time because they only had to get like 50 people through. Please shake your head no. It's enormously wide. They're even getting sprinkled from the waves and the wind interacting at the top of the walls. But the ground that they need secure for travel, primo. It's perfect. And they walk through the brand new channel miraculously opened. And everyone, including animals and cattle and all their stuff and some of the Egyptian stuff, remember that whole plundering? There was actually gift giving before they departed. God moved in the hearts of the people who had enslaved them to supply them. And they get to the other side and then Arrow's arm, uh, Pharaoh's army, which is faster and bigger and stronger, passes through the same channel, gets to them, and wipes them out. That's not what happened? What happened to Pharaoh's army? They drowned. No more pursuit. The oppressor Vanquished. The same waters that delivered them destroyed their enemies. You think that was a memorable event if you walked through there? Do you think you would remember that story you'd want to tell your kids? That story is so dramatic, so insane, so intricate and amazing that people have been writing songs about it for like 3,500 years. It's like somewhere around three to eight weeks later, perhaps. Three to six, probably, weeks later. I'm going to read that verse again. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the month. And it's the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And what should follow is the party is still going, right? They're talking about the fish that they saw in the water, right? They're talking about the ground. They're talking about the frosty air. They're talking about the mist and the cloud. They're talking about that moment when Moses stood up and proclaimed, there is nothing for you to do. Just stand here. God will deliver. And weeks later, they're romancing their life in Egypt. Listen to this. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. 
And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of Yahweh in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread till our bellies were full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly. That is a level of hanger I am not familiar with. But I am familiar with the craving of Egypt. I am familiar with romanticizing the good parts as maybe they were, as likely they weren't. When I was preaching this text, floored. This is not years later. They do this for 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. If it's year 17, maybe the glory of the Red Sea has departed from my thinking. But seven weeks? A few months? I'm really hungry. Wish I just died. Every one of you has had a toddler say that near you. Right? Give me my yogurt or I want to die. You're killing me. Dinner's in 20 minutes. I can't wait. Never my kids, only yours. So I'm preaching through this text and I'm floored. So I do what pastors do when they're floored. They cross-reference. So I jumped into Numbers chapter 14 to relive this. Different perspective, same timing. Freedom in the wilderness compared to bondage in Egypt. Freedom of the wilderness, bondage in Egypt. Numbers 14, verses 2 through 4. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is Yahweh bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little children will become a prey. The nations around them are seen here as predators. And then they ask the pregnant question, would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And then they make a plan. This is not just hanger that is satisfied with gogurt or applesauce. Wouldn't it be better for us to just go back to Egypt? Yeah, because Egypt was awesome. That's why you had to be delivered from it. And so they say to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. See, 
If we are going to understand this moment, we have to understand a simple yet profound truth. That the basic principle of the world is that we need to save ourselves. We will worship what we think we need. Let me say that again. We will serve what we think we need in order to fulfill ourselves. The chorus of the world is do and duty. Do and duty. If we want to understand this principle, consider this. For the last half century at least, the churches in first world countries have set up orphanages around the world in third world countries and societies. Which is wonderful. Fighting for life from womb to tomb should be the goal, the desire, part of the heartbeat of our lives. But since the basic principle of the world is that we need to save ourselves, do for ourselves, one of the most shocking and sorrowful things I have ever contemplated in the entire span of my short life is that there are silent Orphanages. Orphanages filled with infants and toddlers who do not bother crying because they have learned in their even shorter lives no one is coming. Why bother crying? When you are hungry, you will either be fed or you won't. Silent orphanages. Because an orphan often feels alone, probably because they are alone in one of the most basic senses, they learn. You might say it differently, but essentially, if I don't look after me, no one else will look after me. I got to take care of number one because ain't nobody interested in doing it. Orphan thinking is the way of the world. I must do for myself. I must do. I must act. I must save. I must protect. I must. And that's when it becomes... 
a religious fervor. It's a way of life. I have to get mine before I worry about yours. Life is an airplane. Put your own mask on first. And if time or opportunity, then I'll worry about others. You guys know who John Newton is? Who is he? He wrote the song Amazing Grace. You may have heard of it. He has an incredible background. And he probably knows more about slavery than I could ever know because he lived the horrors of slavery. And the Lord saved him from that moment, from that practice, commanding ships and people to imprison and capture and drag away other people. And years later, before he went blind, he had this verse etched in wood and hung in a place he saw it every day. Are you interested in what verse it is? You sure? I mean, I can just skip ahead. All right, you with me? Deuteronomy 15, 15. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And Yahweh your God redeemed you. You were delivered from slavery. John Newton knew slavery. He knew the horrors of bondage. He knew oppression and evil. Man stealing. He knew it. And he wanted to remember that he was delivered from that horror in the same way Israel was before they were even Israel. That is the comparison happening here in Galatians 4. That's the theological backdrop. That if you know Christ, if God has made himself known to you in a salvific way, then you have been delivered from your own Egypt. Listen to his words. Verse 8. Formerly, it's a statement of time, yes? Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. You had an old master. Is your old master ever satisfied? Is it ever enough, fast enough, quality enough? Don't they always want more? This is the nature of slavery in a central way that you have an unsatisfiable master. 
One who says, fine, that's great, but keep going. I want more. I want more by degree. I want more by quality and quantity. What you have, what you've produced, it is not enough. This is the insidious nature of works righteousness. And it's insidious because it's such a chameleon taking an infinite number of forms. You call them idols. What they all have in common, this infinite number of forms, what they all have in common is that they always create idols, which are many false saviors. Have you thought about idolatry that way? I'm going to serve this and it will deliver me. I'm going to give myself to this and it will be my identity. I will give my time. I will give my treasure. I will give my affection to this idol because I wrongly believe it has the power to deliver me. Do idols ever save? Sometimes? A little bit? Once in a great while? No, never. Idols never save. That's why they're false saviors. Well, what are examples of this, pastor? Money, sex, power, fame, right? We can run to those quickly. It didn't take long. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. As if an accent be. Never mind. Money, sex, power, fame. You can read through the letters of the New Testament and come up with an extensive list if you want. You can take the top 10 in the Old Testament and work your way through it. But did you know that there are good things that are also false saviors? It is easy to look at the dual use, right? The internet, good or bad? Yep. Internet can be used for good, can be used for bad. Fire. Fire is dual use, yes? In your kitchen, it provides heat to cook your food. In your living room, surrounded by bricks and stone, it provides warmth and light. But if it's in the bathroom, you lose the house. Dual use. Even good things become tyrannical idols. How about family? Has family ever been an idol for you? Family's good. Achievement. The desire to succeed, to advance, to be and do something more. Is that inherently evil? Is ambition always wrong? It can be wrong. It can also serve and bless and benefit many. 
What about altruism? If you are under the age of 35, meet your God. Altruism is a giant, quote, God, close quote, of this emerging culture and generation. What about the simple approval? Approval from your boss, approval from your colleagues, approval from your classmates, from your friends, from your frenemies. I mean, isn't frenemy itself based on a false pursuit? Yeah. Approval. What about Christian forms? Are there specifically Christian forms of these little false mini savior things? Oh boy. How about swallows? Bible reading. Bible reading good? Is it commanded? Can it be an idol? God can't like me today because I didn't have my quiet time. God had this misery for me as punishment for failing to keep up with the church scripture memory. I didn't even try. Does that make me a bad church member? Make me a bad Christian. Bible reading is good, but it is not God. Church attendance, good? God? No. Let's be clear about this from a pastoral perspective. I've been having some conversations with pastors. We have this thing now called live stream. Just about every church has it. If you're sick and have the flu or other things, do not come to church. Enjoy the live stream. It is a gift and a blessing and a benefit for you to take. But it is an imitation of church. You are viewing something that you are barely a part of in the tiniest form. So I was talking to some pastors and one of them said, I think that the live stream addiction now is akin to putting the fire of the fireplace on your big screen TV. You see the fire, you enjoy the flames but you feel no heat because the TV can't deliver that. How much more is here for you in church than what the TV can give you? Does it give you nothing? No, but it doesn't give you everything. But even church attendance, as important and central as it should be in your life, does not make God love you or dislike you more. In other words, when we treat things that are not God's as God's, we become slaves to those things. Let's refresh our memory. The Jews had been in their servitude to the law. The problem was they were not looking to the Christ that was promised and displayed for your recognition in the law. 
And the Gentiles, they were tired of serving their old pagan idols who also require work, 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 do, 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 duty, duty. And yes, I said duty three times. What about impersonal superstitions and pagan rituals of worship? They were trying to satisfy self-described, supposedly, fickle and ever-changing gods and goddesses who are, remember verse 8, are not gods at all. Works-based religion always functions this way. And we retreat to it, we return to it, because just as Israel longed for Egypt, it's familiar. But it is ultimately man-centered, man-glorifying. It's also blasphemy. And it's Christ denying. It's Christ denying because both pagan who has been made known to the Lord and in relationship with God longing to return to their pagan life is like saying Christ hasn't come. That God I know, yeah, I don't remember him. Now let's be clear, every human being knows that there is a God. It's an internal witness, scripture is very, very clear. But that does not mean that they have an intimate relationship with God. Those are different. But the Jews, in serving the law, which is not God, good, but not God, can't bless, right? Can the law bless any imperfect person? No. So in a sense, the Jews wanting to go back to the law is of the same nature as the pagans wanting to go back to their superstitions and shamanism and fire and earth and water and air and all of those elementary principles, See, the reality is we think we're comfortable with soul-crushing duty. We think we're comfortable with the tyranny of duty, which is a form of works-based salvation. They would never say that they're after salvation. They're after favor and reward from someone or something. Because of Christ, in his life and in his death, we receive favor, yes? Is it unchanging favor? Is it never diminishing favor? Yes, why? Because it's based on Christ and what Christ deserves is never changing. So when God sees you in Christ, he sees the righteous life of Christ, securing all blessings promised in the covenant. He sees the atoning death of Christ, 
which pays the penalty for every single curse. The tyranny of duty to the law or to pagan idols or to Christian imitations of God, like any other, they're dealt with by Jesus once for all time. The Jews are wearied with rule-keeping. The Gentiles, exhausted from serving capricious fake gods, But Christ has come. This is good news, yes? The law's demands met by another whose benefits and blessings are given to the undeserving. So when you wake up on a Tuesday morning thinking, I'm not going to have favor with God based on yesterday, cheer yourself up with the good news. You are far worse than you think you are. Jack Miller used to say that. Cheer up, far worse than you think you are. Spurgeon had a version of this. If a man accuse you of something filthy, take heart, you're far worse than he knows you to be. It's almost like my reputation is Christ's. My identity, Christ. My hope, Christ. My life, Christ. So when he says, but now that you have come to know God, he's referencing something that happened in them in time and space. That there was an alpha point of faith where they not only knew that there was a God, that God made himself known. Listen to the change between the active voice and the passive voice. Now that you have come to know God, beginning of verse 9, or rather to be known by God. It's akin to saying more importantly than you knowing that there is a God, it's that you are known by God, which means you have eternal life. Listen to Jesus on the eve of the crucifixion, talking to his father, in John 17, Jesus says this to his dad. And this is eternal life. That they know you. The only true God. And Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So Paul is here caught. Between y'all know the gospel. God made himself known to you. You've been released from the bondage of duty and invited into the household of faith, adopted as a son, given a full inheritance by nothing that you have done. That silent baby sitting in an orphanage who's lost all hope of provision, all hope of anyone else doing anything else, Their father walks in, wraps them in a blanket, feeds them, cuddles them, and takes them home. That is the gospel. What does that silent baby offer? 
It's the act of God to save. No Christian can say, I did this. Can you say you made yourself a Christian? God did that. What's it based on? The overflow and abundance of his affection. A personal relationship with God is a unique and special blessing. It is a special blessing to be known by God in a salvific way. That's how R.C. Sproul says it. It is a unique and special blessing to be known by God in a salvific way. Y'all, we do not need to make ourselves lovable or beautiful or worthy to God. He already knows us. And he has set his affection upon us. In other words, what we were powerless to do, God himself accomplished in Christ. So how can you turn back? For the Jew, for the Gentile, for you in the pew, in this case the chair. Why are you attempting to turn back the clock and live as if Christ never came? Paul calls it in verse 9, weak and worthless. Elementary principles of the world. Same structure as verse 3. Whose slaves you want to be once more. Speaking to time, yes? There was a time when this was true of you. And then there was a time that this was not true of you. And you want to go back to the former? Forsaking the latter? If you want to do a deep dive on these ideas, I encourage you to check out the Westminster Confession of Faith. That's the prose version of that document. Chapter 19. Spend time in there this week. It will bless you. But ultimately, the Gentiles want to return to their pagan ways and the Jews want to return to a wrong view of the Old Testament. They want us, the Galatians, and everyone else to not believe that Jesus has come. They want us to go back to the rule-keeping and observances of Old Testament Israel. Go back to the special days. Go back to the calendar. Go back to the astrology. And live as if you can do for yourself, like an orphan, what only Christ could do. Remember, what we were powerless to do, God accomplished in Christ. Colossians 2 is a place you could spend time this week. And in that, Paul explains that the Old Testament law is a shadow. That Jesus Christ is the fulfillment, the substance. And you will even find that phrase to the elemental spirits of the world. In the middle of verses 16 through 23. So how can you turn back again? How can you return to the soul-crushing tyranny of duty? Because it's familiar? Because right now is hard and your memory is bad? Religious observance, duty, obligations. 
whether it's in the form of feasts or celebrations, it is a return to slavery. And it is foolish to go back to the shadows because the substance of Christ has come. God with us. What's the application? What's the witness of this text? Text? Lest we forget, we cannot save ourselves. How do we apply it? Read the scripture looking for Christ on every page. Don't read the scripture trying to figure out how you're supposed to do it. Look at Christ on every page because the inheritance is for the sons, not the slaves. It does not come by keeping the law, nor by observance to the demands of idols. Sonship, adoption, inheritance, favor, blessing, goodness, mercy, they all come from the same place. Living in the Holy Spirit. So here's my closing question to you to consider at lunch. What idols are you most in danger of serving? What idols, not could there be one, but which one? What idols are you most in danger of serving? Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we look to you this morning we ask that you would make the goodness of the gospel soar in our hearts, that you would hear our voices as you know us, good, bad, and ugly. You know the power of your Son at work by your Spirit in our lives. Help us to see what you see. Move in us that we would love what you love. And that we would despise the slaveries of old and present. Help us to see clearly. Help us to hear clearly. That we might know you. And enjoy being known by you. And remind us that the salvation you have secured for us gives us every blessing up front and all the way through. And forgive us for our urge and craving for Egypt. Forgive us for the ways that we contemplate or commit evil against you and against your people. And Father, we ask that you would help us every day to remember and adore the gospel of our salvation as a way of remembering your affection for us. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we agree.